Hello, for those of you who haven't met me before, my name is Anna. It's so good to see you here. Um, welcome. You're joining us in the second of our mini-series on um, the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God, but it sounds posher and nicer, doesn't it, when it's Imago Dei? Um, uh, anyway, uh, the, the phrase image of God um, is literally lifted out of Genesis 1 at the creation of human beings when God speaks over humanity and says, I made humanity in my image and likeness. So what it means to be human is to be made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, if we want to become more human, more ourselves, more who God has created us to be, then we need to become more like God. That's why we're doing this series to look at who God is. And thankfully, we don't have to guess who God is, that um, we get to know, we know who God is perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ, who came as the perfect representation of what it means to be human, a perfect representation of who, what it is to be God. And he came and he demonstrated to us what it means to be human. So we don't need to turn to self-help to find out who we are. We turn to Jesus and living out his pattern and imitating his ways. So um, Pete did a great talk on creation, decreation, um, Recreation, yeah, I really should know that by now. You'd think I'd know that. I've heard it so many times. Um, but if you miss that talk, I encourage you to go and listen to it because I'm not going to do recap. Um, but, but essentially, oh, a little bubble in my throat. Essentially, um, to, to be human is to imitate a pattern of living the way of Jesus. That is what the church is called today. We're called to imitate the way of Jesus. And um, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. One of the things I'm so thankful for to being a part of this church is that I know that the reasons why we do what we do isn't because things are pragmatically a good idea, but actually we do it because it's what Jesus does. And we're imitating and copying what he has done, not just because it feels like, like the newfangled special idea. Sometimes our ideas are good. But primarily it's because it's what Jesus does. And this, this afternoon, what we're looking at is what does it mean to image a courageous God and become a people who are courageous? And um, to be totally honest, when I first started planning and thinking about this talk and musing on it in my, my daydreaming times, this is kind of what I had in my head. Um, I think I was vastly overestimating my gift of communication, and I don't exactly scream tartan, war paint, and um, animal skins. But anyway, I also think it shows a skewed version of actually what courage is and what it means to be courageous. The root of the word courage comes from the Latin core, which means heart. And actually, the original meaning of courage was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And um, I should have, I, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to Brene, Brene Brown's stuff or read her book, Daring Greatly. Very, very good. Um, but I conveniently forgotten that actually the pathway to courage is through vulnerability. But I was reminded when Pete told me to go and speak to a psychologist this week, not because I have any particular issues, I do have issues, but this was about um, a particular psychologist who studied courage and he studied um, what other things that um, stop us from being courageous. And, so, and looked at some of the things that help us to step towards courage. And I've, I'm really grateful for his time because a lot of what I'm about to say comes from that. Um, but one of the things he said when he reminded me, was that he said, you, you're, you can sometimes look like you're being courageous, but unless you're being vulnerable, then it's not actually possible to be courageous. And um, it was lucky that the, the FaceTime was audio only and not visual because my face did something like this. Because I had a plan of speaking about vulnerability as like 0.5 or 5 or something, I didn't really want it to be kind of the whole thing. But courage is, is, is a big deal. 
Um, it's in the Bible, the most um, repeated commandment is to, be, to not be afraid. It's the commandment to, to, to be courageous. And it's repeated 365 times. And um, Pete James recently recorded a podcast with a guy called Jay Pathak, who's all, I've also stolen a lot of his material. Um, but um, the reason he said that courage is so important is because unless we have courage then it's impossible to ha- practice any other virtue. We can't be kind without courage. We can't be obedient without courage. We can't be humble without courage. We can't be just without courage. We can't be merciful without courage. And the list goes on and on and on. Courage is what tips us over into action. And the reason it requires vulnerability is because it's right at the hinge point when we're about to step into something new, that's something that's costly, something that's scary, something that's risky. We can't help but encounter vulnerability. But if we're afraid of vulnerability, then we're always going to back away from the edge. We're always going to step back, retreat into safety and comfort. So when we're talking about imaging a courageous God, what we're really doing is we're talking about imaging a vulnerable God, a God who makes himself vulnerable. Even in the very act of creating us human beings, he makes himself vulnerable because he makes human beings who are capable of rejecting him. He opens himself up to rejection. But for me, one of the most amazing examples of courage is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just at the point when he's about to be arrested. And it's the, it's the encounter, it's the conversation that he has with God where he has to face up to the, with the reality of his destination of the cross. So we're going to pick up the gospel account in Mark 14 if you want to get your Bibles out. Also, there's Bibles in the front of your pews. If you haven't got a Bible, take it away. It's our gift to you because lo- we believe these are words of life. But just to help us engage with the scene... Um, Some scholars um, believe that Mark was actually um, and and should best be understood as a play. And uh, it it helps us to engage with the the text slightly differently when you view it in that way. Because when you think about it as a play, um, as an audience, sometimes when you're watching a play, you're privy to information that the actors in the drama aren't aware of. You're allowed to know where the story is heading before they do. And at this point in Mark... Um, as, as the audience, you've seen these, this conspiring going on behind the scenes where the Pharisees have been watching Jesus and they're saying, like, we've got to do something about this man. And it starts to brew and it starts to build up to the point where they've made a decisive thing. We have to do something. We have to stop him. And they've made that decision and suddenly they find the means when Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, says, I will betray him. So they've now got the, the motive, they've got the means. And, there's, um, and just before you've had this meal where Jesus is with his friends and Judas is there and then Judas slips out. So as the audience, you know that the arrest of Jesus is absolutely imminent. You can feel the tension building. And um, if you're like me, when you watch like, any kind of scary film, you're like kind of screaming at the, like, the, the screen to like, you know, don't go around that corner. No, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go. There's danger. There's danger. And as the audience, you'll be looking at Jesus going, like, Jesus, you can tell Jesus know, knows what's going on. You're like, Jesus, why aren't you running? Jesus, why? It's dark. Why don't you escape now? Now is your moment. You've got to leave. And the disciples are totally oblivious of the imminent danger that's going on. And it's like this moment of connection between the audience and Jesus as as you're aware and he's aware of actually what's going to happen. So let's read it. Mark 14. Sorry, I should have Mark 14. Um, They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. 
Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it would be possible, the hour might pass it from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Sinners, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the point where Jesus faces up and determines the next steps towards a cross. And if we want to be people who are courageous, we have to engage in our Gethsemane moments. And there's two simple things that I want to say today. Is one, don't avoid Gethsemane. And the other thing is don't remain in Gethsemane. So first of all, don't avoid Gethsemane. Your vulnerability is not weakness. Don't be confused by what's going on here. This is Jesus being vulnerable, not weak. And when I was reading this, um, this earlier um, in the week, I was thinking it's actually quite an interesting story for the, the early church to include in the gospel accounts. Because the, the gospels were, were written to convince people that of who Jesus was, that this man was actually the son of God. And, and when people in the ancient world pictured who, what God was like, or even like today, when people picture what God is like, they wouldn't imagine a man sweating blood on his face in a garden contemplating his own death. And you, but you can imagine also in the early church, um, the early church reading these, this account under severe persecution, when the reality of following Jesus meant for them life or death, that they might have actually had shared some of the same questions. They might shared some of the same agony, the sorrow, the anxiety, the stress. But can you imagine the companionship they would have felt with Jesus as they read this story? Like, Jesus has already been here. He's walked this path before. He's asked these questions. I'm not alone in them. And Gethsemane could be mistaken as a place of weakness, somewhere to avoid, somewhere to kind of pass by before we do some amazing heroic act of courage. But what we see in Jesus is that his vulnerability is not weakness. It is actually, as Brené Brown says, the birthplace of courage. And I find it intriguing at this um, crucial point in the story where there's so much action going on um, throughout the story that suddenly this is, um, Jesus chooses a time to pause. He starts to slow things down. And when you, you slip back into kind of Mark's audience mode, you're thinking that you're watching this story and your heart is racing as you're watching these things unfold. And Jesus chooses to stop. But the moment of stopping, of choosing to determine his next steps, means that Jesus isn't just a victim of his circumstances. He isn't a fanatic whose plans have just gone wrong. But he's making deliberate choices. That means that every single action that follows is absolutely his decision and deliberate act and choice and will to go to the cross. That he is the master of this situation. He slows down to determine his act of courage. And I think one of the reasons that we aren't more courageous is because we're just going too fast. Our routines mean that we don't have the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual capacity to even contemplate being courageous. Some people are sat here as I'm talking and are thinking, Anna, I'm just so busy, I'm so full on at the moment that I can't even think about being courageous. I'm exhausted. But if we don't build in the margin to, in our lives or the boundaries, then our energy will be capped for this stuff. 
And we've got to set this as a priority. If, if um, stepping into courage is actually the hinge point of growth and stepping into all that God has called us to be, then we need to make this a priority. Otherwise, in a year's time, in five years' time, we're going to be, our growth will have been stunted, or even worse, we might not be in the image of Jesus. We're actually made in the image of someone else. And if we're going to be courageous again and again, we're going to need to have space in our life where we can actually recover when it goes wrong. Unless we sow down, we won't actually be able to wrestle with the calling of, our, our, of God on our lives. To discern whether it's his calling or our calling, what we feel about that, we'll be swept along with the decisions and choices of everybody else. So is the way you're managing your time actually conducive to courage? Perhaps after this talk, maybe you need to go and look at your diary. Maybe you need to look at your life. I certainly know, as I've been um, preparing this, I'm thinking, I definitely need to make space to be courageous. And we can think that people who are courageous are just simply people of action. But actually, people who are courageous have got to um, take care of their internal world. Because there's stuff going on when, when we're stepping into courage internally that we need to take control of. And slowing down long enough to actually allow ourselves to listen to God and listen to what's actually going on, it's totally vital. But the re another reason why we won't slow down is actually we're afraid of what's going to come up. And you need to listen to what surfaces. You need to slow down in those hinge moments for long enough to listen to what is coming up, what's bubbling up in you. What are you thinking about who God is? What are you thinking about yourself? What are you thinking about your circumstances and his will for your life? And someone said to me that actually when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling that pressure, um, it's a bit like, I find this a bit grim, but um, it's a bit like toothpaste that when it's been squeezed, like what's inside comes out. And the question is like, when we're being squeezed in those moments, what's coming out of us? And with Jesus, what you see is this amazing um, consistency with what he's, who he's always been. That actually when you read the prayer that uh, he prays in Gethsemane, it's actually very similar to the Lord's Prayer where he calls God Father, where he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's a consistency because this is who he is. And I just wonder what will come out of us when we are squeezed. What comes out of us when we're facing those moments? Is it, I just can't do this because I'm not courageous. I'm, I'm a wimp. Is it, I'm not gifted enough. I can't pray because, um, about this because actually what happens if God doesn't give it, give it to me? I can't deal with that kind of disappointment. I can't take the rejection of asking someone out because I just can't deal with it. My identity cannot deal with it. And there are very good reasons why um, these thoughts come up in our minds. And this is where I'm about to butcher some psychology. So if there's anyone who's a psychologist in the room, I'm so sorry. Um, you can come and correct me later, but let's just plow on for now and pretend that it's true. Um, <laughs> but as human beings, we, funnily enough, we're actually designed to survive. And the neocortex um, processes... <laughs> thanks. Um, I could talk about the amygdala, but I'm not going to. Um, um, processes facts and information to reason why we should or shouldn't do something based on our circumstances. And for some things, like that's actually really super helpful, and it helps keep us alive. It's like, oh, I've learned that if I touch this thing, it's hot, I'm going to get burnt, so I won't touch that again. That's really helpful. But unfortunately, it's built on our perception of circumstances, which is fallible. For example, say you're a little kid, 
and um, you're having a nice little walk in the park, and suddenly this dog comes bounding towards you with total excitement because he sees a little playmate that he's like, oh, I want to play with you. And you perceive that as a threat that he's coming to attack you. So you start screaming, but the poor little doggy can't distinguish between fear and, aggress um, fear and aggression. So he thinks that you're being aggressive towards him. So then he gets aggressive back. And boom, you've got yourself a fear of dogs. You think that they're all dangerous, they're all evil. And of course, we know that only cats are evil. <laughs> Amen. So you've got a whole lifetime of building up these patterns in your head of some really useful information, but you've also got a whole load of things in your head of self-limiting beliefs, things that are going to choke your courage by the way that they're acting in your head, these narratives that go on. There's things that we believe about ourselves, about others, about God, about our circumstances, about the world around us, and they're active. And they're, it, it, these are the things that hold us back. First of all, exaggerated consequence. And this one can sound like a rational response, but actually it exaggerates the consequence, um, as it says. So, for example, um, like, uh, you can say, like, if my idea doesn't land, then I'm going to be totally written off as a failure. It exaggerates the consequence of the situation. Number two, universal impact, where you generalize everything. My team didn't hit every single one of the, the targets that we wanted to make. We hit some of them, but we, can, we ignore those ones. And we end up generalizing and speaking ourselves in absolute terms, like, I'm never going to be good enough. My team is never going to be good enough. False permission, beliefs about the context that we're in, that we start to believe that there's, there's certain ways that things are done, like, I know I'm not going to try anything new because this is the way something's done, and, and I can't innovate, I can't bring change because this is the way things are done in this place. A false internal image, how we see ourselves. Um, this is where the imposter syndrome comes in, where we think everyone else is faster, better, smarter than us, and therefore I don't actually belong. And fifth... False external image, how we perceive other people. Pete Hughes knows absolutely everything about everything, so I won't even speak. And of course, that's total tr um, totally true. Um, not true, false. Um, but these self-limiting beliefs, these inaccurate conclusions that you've made about yourself, your situation, who God is, and other people, if unchecked, will constrain you and hold you back. They choke your courage and skew your perception of reality. They pull you back from the edge of courage again and again, tell you to retreat, shut up, stay quiet, don't do anything, don't make any change, don't innovate in any way. And interesting, there's um, um, a guy called Tom Wojek. I don't know. Uh, he, does, he did a TED talk, um, basically, where he went around 70 countries and he took groups of four people and he gave them some spaghetti and some string and a marshmallow. And he said, I want you to construct a tower. I want you to make the tallest tower you can possibly make in this set amount of time. And what it needs to do, it needs to hold a marshmallow. Now, he went all over the world and did it with lots of different groups of people. And you'll be really thankful to know that architects scored the highest. They made the highest tower. Well done, them. <laughs> and their training worked. But interestingly, the, another group that scored incredibly high, I think it was second highest, is actually kindergarten children. And the reason they, um, scored, they, they did so well is because they just had a go. That they didn't have all these self-limiting beliefs. They were like, let's just try this, let's just do that, let's innovate, let's try something. If it fails, it fails. If it goes wrong, let's just pick things up and try again. But when we have all these self-limiting beliefs going on, we're going to be afraid to, to do any of that. 
And I believe that it's possible to live in freedom from those self-limiting beliefs. I believe that Jesus has, I have absolute confidence in his ability to cut through every single lie that we've ever believed about him, ourselves, and the world around us. And if we, were, if we started telling stories about the ways in which we have seen ourselves in the past, but the way in which God's seen us, seen us now, if we told stories about what God has done, we'd be here for hours and hours in the way that he's changed our minds and set us free. And I'm totally convinced that he is able to do that, but I'm not always convinced that we actually want to live beyond the lie because our identity has become so wrapped up in it that it's more comforting to live in a prison of a lie than it is to step into the wide open space of freedom. I'm not, com- I'm not confident that actually we have the stamina to process some of the, the lies that we deal with. So, um, we, I don't think we have the stamina sometimes to actually undo ourselves, take ourselves out from under the web that of, of lies that are wrapped around us. But I do believe it's possible. And in John 5, Jesus turns to a man who's been um, sick on his bed for, for years and years, and he asks him a really strange question. He says, do you want to be well? And I feel like what God is saying to us is, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from this stuff? Do you actually want to live with courage? Because I can make you free. And while I believe that Jesus breaks every single lie and he is able to do that, I also think he's given us each other. And just as a really practical step, if that's you, if you know, like, I, I want to live in freedom, first thing I encourage you to do is come and get prayer at the end. The second thing I say to do is go and speak to a friend or a family member, someone you trust, and start having the conversation about what are the things that are going on in your head when you're feeling fear. Like, what are some of the lies that um, are, are wrapped up in your mind that you actually want to become um, free from? And some of them we need other people to, to sit and have this conversation with because some of them are so entrenched in us that we actually think they're genuinely true and we can't identify them as lies. And we need other people just to pull us out of them sometimes. And if we want to be a courageous people, what we're going to need to do is pull our friends close. I find it really fascinating that Jesus pulls his closest friends towards him, even though they're totally and utterly useless. And it's, but there's something about um, having friends in our lives that gives us courage. And another really practical thing I want you to ask is think about what is your um, support network like? Do you have people in your life who will put courage into you? Do you have people who, in your life that you're going to practice being courageous with? It's one of our dreams for hubs is that they would be places where people can practice courage, where they can, don't have to do it on their own, but you can actually do it with a friend. And just an example of this, Old Gate East came and joined um, the Prayer on the Streets Hub on Monday because they were like, we want to step out in courage. And what they've decided to do, so they did it with us, but then they're going to go and do it as a hub perhaps once a month where they can actually practice together and do it, step out in courage. And you see in, um, in, the, in, in Paul, the Apostle Paul, he went through a lot of things. He went through shipwrecks and prisons and beatings and people trying to kill him and stone him. You know. But the, when you also read in his letters, like he's got a wide and a vast support network. What are the relationships you're cultivating? And it is you that is cultivating the relationships around you. You're not, you, you choose who you have around you. You choose the type of relationship and the way in which you're relating to those people. Who do you have in your life who's playing the role of encourager? And the other thing is, who are you playing the role of encourager to? Who are you putting courage into that they feel so full and encouraged that actually they, they're not afraid to fail, they're, afraid to, they're not afraid to go out and give something a go because they've got a friend in you who will encourage them. that They can come back to them and say, oh, I totally messed it up, and you'll say, yeah, great, go again. Who are you doing that for? 
And are we creating this culture of encouragement around us at KXC where we're not afraid of having a go and giving a go at things? So don't avoid Gethsemane. This is the place um, where we, in our vulnerability, come, and it's the birthplace of courage. But you also can't remain in Gethsemane. Gethsemane alone isn't just the place of courage. If you stay in Gethsemane, you end up kind of doing some sort of like navel gazing, looking at the belly button fluff um, in your belly button. Um, though I said this today, I said this this morning. I was like, has anyone actually ever found any belly button fluff in there? Belly button. Yeah, just the one. Again, there was one this morning as well. Um, yeah, both from Trolley Wood. Um, <laughs> what does that say? Um, but anyway, belly button fluff. Uh, we can't think ourselves courageous. That was that point. Okay, um, what you need to do is you need to look for opportunities to be courageous. There's this interesting kind of like um, parallel story that's going on in the Garden Gethsemane between Jesus and his disciples. And as, as the story goes on, Jesus is becoming more and more alert, increasingly attentive, whereas it's the total opposite of the disciples. They start becoming increasingly inattentive. And I think there's something about us actually seeking out opportunities to practice courage. And Jay Pathak, again in his podcast, said... Um, like, there are opportunities to be, be courageous everywhere. We could just need to step out onto the street. But sometimes we don't want to look for courage because we believe the lie that actually um, to be comfortable, it means to be happy. That we think that comfort is the way in which we're going to be happy. But courage and comfort don't belong together. And last year, um, one of the things I woke up to... Um, is that I was becoming really bored in my faith. I was becoming bored of following Jesus. And I'd found that I kind of slept, slept, walked into this kind of very tame, routine, safe faith where things weren't costly, they weren't scary for me, there was no risk anymore. And the problem wasn't Jesus and the problem wasn't church and the problem wasn't being a Christian. It was my fault. But little by little, and I'm still very much trying to wake myself up from this, but the, one of the crucial things I've learned is you've just got to look and grab at opportunities to be courageous. So it's a great way of knowing, are you being courageous? The question is, are you bored? Are you bored in your faith? And are you doing something that scares you? And um, again, just a really practical tip from Jay Pathet was, why don't you do something every single day that scares you, that requires faith, that requires risk? But it's not looking alone. Actually, Gethsemane is also about movement. The final push to actually move and do something. And in the interest of full disclosure, this is the bit where it actually really is going to hurt. And one of the things that, um, again, Jay Pathak said, um, this is the final time I'll quote him. Um, he, I basically ripped off everything from him. Um, it, one of the, the examples he talked about was going to the gym. If you're not working out properly then you're going to come home and you're going to feel fantastic and you're not going to hurt the next day. But if you're actually working out properly, I've heard, that you, <laughs> you hurt the next day. Um, and just as a little side note, because um, I fear Pete James is going to edit this bit out of the podcast, there's this amazing exchange when, um, uh, when Jay turns to Pete and says, Pete, um, you look like you're someone that works out. And the, the awkward, the gloriously awkward moment where Pete James was like, uh, uh, no, I don't actually. Um, it's the angle of the computer. Um, <laughs> so if, if, you know, if you want, guys, if you want some advice on how to look buff in a computer screen, then talk to Pete James. Um, but what tips us into action is actually that, um, that beyond, the, the goal beyond the point of pain is actually worth it. 
It was for the joy that um, set before him that Jesus endured the pain, the humiliation, the shame, and the scorn of the cross because he knew beyond it was reconciliation and salvation for whoever wanted it. And some people see his act of courage and see his act of love and they say, yes, Jesus, your love is enough for me. But let's be honest, some people see that act of courage and their response is actually, no, Jesus, I don't want that. But does that diminish Jesus? Does that diminish his act of courage? No. The thing about courage is we can't guarantee the outcome. And the chances are that sometimes things are going to go a little bit wrong. Sometimes we might be rejected. Sometimes things don't go our way. But what happens if we change the idea and the metrics of success? Where failure wasn't fatal, but actually we reframe success where succeeding was having a go, that winning was just getting up and having a go. Theodore Roosevelt um, says this amazing quote, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcomings, but who actually does strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best in the end knows the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be amongst the cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat." What happens if, as a church, we didn't go after success, but we went after daring greatly? That we were people who got up time and time again, who just had a go at things. And I want to ask you, where do you need courage right now? Where are you now? Where is it that you want to move to? Where is it that God is calling you to move to? What is that hinge? And courage is quite a relative thing. There are some people in this room who have gone through horrific circumstances of trauma, abuse, grief, who are managing mental health issues. And actually, for you to demonstrate courage is actually just to get up in the morning and leave the house. And that is courage. And there's some people in the room on the other end of the spectrum that actually people look at you and you think you're courageous. But actually, the truth is you're just flowing your gifting flowing your abilities, and actually it's requiring very little of you. So be careful not to compare yourself to who you're sat next to, or have a preconceived of what courage looks like. And just ask the question, where is the risk right now? Where are you on the cusp of growth? What is God stirring in you that you actually um, you need to do something in order to step into it? And when I was preparing this, I felt really strongly that there's some people um, where it's actually the courage to stay, that we often assume that courage means something new, stepping into something new and, um, like, fun. Um, not that staying is not fun, anyway. That's not my point. But um, we kind of think of it as starting things and starting a new job. But what happens if, you, if courage for you right now is actually to stay? Courage to stay in a job. I think marriage is an incredibly courageous thing because it's someone saying that I'm going to stay with you for the rest of my life. I'm going to commit to you. Maybe there's people that you need to learn to commit to. Maybe that is your courage right now, is actually I'm going to be someone who has lifelong friends. I know that's something that God is speaking to me about. And actually I find that very terrifying, the idea of like committing to lifelong friendships. Or maybe it's being courageous to stay in a place, 
Perhaps it's being courageous to stay in London when it doesn't make sense to stay in London because you get to a certain age and you kind of want to have a family or kids or you want to start putting, um, getting, like, buying a house, etc. And it doesn't make sense to stay in London because you can't get as much for your money, blah, blah, blah. But actually, maybe God is saying, I want you to be courageous and I want you to stay. Perhaps as we start to plant more and more at KXC, actually for you, the, the courageous thing will be not to go with a plant with all your friends, but actually the courage to stay and commit to this community. And while there are things that we are called to do um, individually in, in acts of courage, I think also as a community, there's a calling on us, particularly at the moment, particularly in the season, where um, corporately the Lord is telling us to tell the story of who we are with our whole heart. And we've had so many words in recent months, and, and I think even years really, of, of God stirring something for evangelism, stirring something of sharing our faith with people. But we're not going to see people come to faith unless we tell them the story of who we are with our whole hearts. And I wonder if the people around you, your family, your friends and colleagues, know who you really are. Do they really know you? Not just that you go to church, but do they know you as someone who's chosen to center their life, or at least try to center their life on Jesus? Are they aware that you have received forgiveness and love, even though you're totally undeserving? Do they know how faithful and encouraging God is to you day after day? Do they know that when you look to the future, you have a measure of hope because you're part of a bigger story? Do they know how you deal with your questions and your doubts and how you've worked them out in the past? Imagine if we had the courage to tell the story of who we are and what he's done in our life, that we didn't hold back, but actually we shared the good news with people around us. And let's take the pressure off ourselves, because if courage isn't about getting the results, it's not about how many people we're converting, it's actually how many people have we just told the story of our lives to. And I mentioned earlier about the early church and how they might have read the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. But the reason, one of the reasons that early church grew so much was because of their courage. The people around them, they just couldn't believe that these people were willing to die for their faith. No other religion was inspiring such commitment and courage. And why? Because no other God had considered humans so valuable that they actually thought they, he actually thought they were worth dying for. The church, early church knew that they needed to have courage if they were going to dream for a different way in which the world could be for slaves and women, for children that had been left and abandoned, that there was a different way of doing education, of having hospitals and health care. It was courage that allowed them to imagine and dream and then act upon that. And the world needs us to be courageous. The world is crying out for us to be courageous. The world is crying out for the church to be the church so the world can be the world. And it's only courage that is going to get us there.